Glad that everybody is here today to join us. Uh, we're going to be in John chapter 19, verses 31 through 42. So if you want to open your Bibles there, if you're going to use the Bibles in front of you, the page number is 852. Again, John 19, verses 31 through 42. Uh, while, I, while you do that, I want to remind you about the resource wall over there by the Connect booth. Uh, all of those books over there are free. We give those away because we want you to take them uh, because we find them to be a good supplement to God's Word. Uh, help us to understand what is actually taught in God's Word because, as I've said multiple times, the more we know about Jesus, the greater love we will have for Him. Think of anything that you actually care about, you have a, an intimate knowledge with that thing. Um, so we want you to be educated. We want you to, to be in the process of renewing your mind on a daily basis. So that's why we give away those resources. So again, please take them. Don't be shy. Uh, also, again, want to remind you about Mission Ohio. Please join us in prayer for the next 21 days. Pray for Maranatha, pray for our local body as we are growing and as things are happening, uh, but also pray for our uh, gospel influence in the city as uh, we are uh, been planted uh, theologically as sort of a light for Christ, as a lampstand for the gospel in our city. Pray for our influence as well. Uh, before we read our passage for today, uh, again, John 19, uh, let me catch us up on where we are in the story of John's gospel, just in case you haven't been with us in the last couple of weeks. Uh, many of us know the story, but Jesus has been arrested. Jesus has uh, been declared guilty without proof by the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin, if you don't know, are the Jewish religious elite who were sort of charged with spiritually guiding the people of Israel. Jesus then is declared innocent by Pilate. Remember, he says, I find no guilt in this man, and he, he wants to sort of set him free. But Jesus is still murdered. Jesus is still murdered because Pilate was afraid to stand against the feverish mob because he ultimately feared losing his position in Rome. Which brings us to where we are today, which brings us to where we are in John's narrative gospel when Jesus, the Son of God, hung dead on the cross. But even though evil was accomplished on that day, in this part of the story, Christ's purpose did not fail. Amen? Even though evil was accomplished that day, uh, Christ's purpose did not fail because in an ultimate example of total sovereignty, we learned that Jesus gave up his spirit. His life was not taken from him. Rather, he chose to let himself die. And he did that so God's wrath for sin would be satisfied and the purpose of his coming to earth would be finished. So we learned in last week's sermon. And now today, we get to see the beginnings of his exaltation. We get to be see the, the beginnings of, of Christ as he walked through humiliation of the cross, now being exalted for who he is. And that's in John 19. So if you would stand with me in reverence for God's word, I will read John 19, verses 31 through 42. You can, again, follow along on the screen or in the Bibles in your hand. It says this. Since it was the day of preparation, and so that the bodies would not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for that Sabbath was a high day, the Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken and that they might be taken away. So the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first and of the other who, were, who had been crucified with him. But when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and at once there came out blood and water. He who saw it has bore witness. His testimony is true, and he knows that he is telling the truth that you may also believe. For these things took place that the scripture might be fulfilled. Now one of his bones will be broken, and again another scripture says that he will, or they will look on him whom they have pierced. 
After these things, Joseph of Arimathea, who was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus, and Pilate gave him permission. So he came and took away his body. Nicodemus also, who earlier had come to Jesus by night, came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes and about 75 pounds in weight. So they took the body of Jesus and bound it in linen cloths with the spices, as is the burial custom of the Jews. Now in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden a new tomb in which no one had yet been laid. So because of the Jewish day of preparation... So because of the Jewish day of preparation, since the tomb was close at hand, they laid Jesus there. This is the word of the Lord. Yes, we got have a seat. Let me pray for us. Father, we are grateful. <clears throat> we are grateful for your word. We are grateful that we can come and we can, even though we've heard this story before, likely, Lord, that we can come with new eyes and new ears to, to hear and understand what your spirit is he's trying to teach us through what you've already revealed. Or today, help us to, to, to see this story anew. Help us to, to be given greater faith and understanding as you remove doubt, even over, under the circumstances of what we read. Help us, Father, to walk this out. Help us to, to cling to this truth for the assurance that it provides us. But I'm grateful for you speaking to us daily through your word. Lord, again, be with us in this moment. In Jesus' name, amen. So at the top of this passage, John talks about the day of preparation. The day of preparation that John references, as well as he referenced it in last week, if you remember, it actually happened every Friday because the people of Israel would prepare for the Sabbath, which was Saturday. So the day of preparation, they would prepare for their day of Sabbath, again, Saturday. But this day of preparation... This particular Friday was a little bit more significant because they were in the midst of Passover. This particular Friday that John mentions is the day that the Passover lamb ritual would be carried out. The Passover lamb ritual is you know, talking about when they were uh, referencing the idea of their sin being removed and how they were brought out of Exodus. This is the day that the priest would sacrifice a lamb to symbolize God's mercy in forgiving their sin. And we can hopefully see the connection between what's going on in the Old Testament and what is now happening in this moment, right? Between what God was showing the world through the nation of his chosen people with the Passover celebration and what he was accomplishing for his people in the world through Christ. Hopefully you can see the connection, how they would sacrifice a lamb and how Christ is the sacrificial lamb. Now, I know that we sit here and as we even talk about this and as we preach through these words that we sit here blessed. We sit here blessed because we are now on this side of the cross, but sometimes I'm honestly just baffled at the Sanhedrin and how they can't recognize the moment that they're actually in. Right? The Sanhedrin are the people who are meant to memorize the law and the prophets, at least they were supposed to have it memorized, and they knew the prophecies about the Messiah, such as Isaiah 53, verse 4, says this, "'Surely he has come and borne our griefs,' And carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. And we, like sheep, have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. How could the Sanhedrin not recognize the moment that they're in if they knew the prophecies of the Messiah? Now, to give them some credit, which is 
fair, to give them some credit, they did recognize that something was happening. Right? They did give some attention to the fact when a man showed up out there in the wilderness, that was John the Baptist back in John 1, and they should have because, again, they were the ones who knew God's word the best, and they were then essentially the lookouts for what the Old Testament or what God's word was foretelling. Isaiah, again, prophesied that there would be this man that would come out from the wilderness and that he would be the one to declare the arrival of the Messiah. So when they met John the Baptist, they should have known what was about to happen. Now, we don't have time because this isn't exactly the point of the story. We don't have time to to go into all this, but I do want to encourage you to go back and look up that incredible story because it is a wonderful part of God's plan when it comes into the idea of the gospel as well. It connects to what's happening in today's text. So go and study Isaiah chapter 40. Go and study the prophecy of Isaiah chapter 40 and how it connects to John 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 the disciple. Wait. John the Baptist, in the way that it's the proclamation of the gospel. Got it. But I will tell you how it connects. I want you to go study it for yourself, but I will tell you how it connects. What this messenger, this herald, was meant to proclaim. He tells us, as Jesus walks towards him, he says that this is Jesus, the Lamb of God, and that he is the one who was meant to take away the sins of the world. He is the Lamb of God. This is the man who is to come. Now, it is not ironic. We've been talking about all sorts of ironies as we've been looking at the Jewish uh, religious elite's actions. We've been talking about how ironic it is, how ironic it is, how ironic it is. But this is not ironic that Jesus was killed on the day of preparation. It is not ironic that Jesus was killed on the day of preparation because God's plan has always been for Jesus to be the necessary and the final sacrifice for the penalty of sin, or so the penalty of sin could be washed away from God's chosen people. It is not ironic. What is ironic is once again the frustrating reality that the Jewish elite are more concerned about following the minor points of the law while they're in the midst of trying to clean up their murder of God's Son. It's baffling, it's frustrating how they're so concerned with the minute details while they're cleaning up the murder of Jesus, God's son. These leaders of leaders are basically trying to hurry things up. Oh my gosh, I have things I have to do. Let's, let's do this thing. I realize he's dead. Let's, let's get him down from there. I've got a ceremony to attend to. They feel as though they have more important things to do and they don't want to be responsible for or at least accused of defiling the land of Jerusalem. In Deuteronomy 21, it says this, If a man has committed a crime punishable by death, and he is put to death, and you hang him on a tree, his body shall not remain all night on the tree, but you shall bury him the same day, for a hanged man is cursed by God. You shall not defile your land that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance. John tells us, That is why they asked for Jesus and the criminal's legs to be crushed. That is why, because they were concerned with the minute detail, this this reality that they asked for Jesus and the criminal's legs to be broken. Obviously, if their legs were broken, this meant that they would quicken the pace of death because it would prevent them from being able to to stand and give themselves the opportunity to breathe, breathe. But as John is our eyewitness... As he is writing by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, we are told what happens next happens 
because it was meant to fulfill Scripture. It was meant to fulfill Scripture. And this also helps us understand that all of the Bible, Old Testament and New Testament, always points its readers to understanding and belief in God's sovereignty as well as that Jesus Christ is who he claimed to be. When we look at this, when John proclaims that this moment happens because according it was to fulfill Scripture, it's meant to show us that the Old Testament as well as the New Testament is altogether meant to lead us to understand and believe that God is who God is, that Jesus Christ is our Messiah, that he is the only begotten Son of God. Now, the request is granted. The soldiers do come. They break the legs of the men who hung next to Jesus. But when they arrive at the Christ, they find him dead. Now, we have to assume that these soldiers are pretty good at identifying whether or not somebody is dead, right? These soldiers, this is their job, and there really isn't any wiggle room in Rome for you to be bad at your job. But the way that this moment is written, I can sort of hear that there was this moment of surprise. They were a bit shocked at what was happening, and I think that it's this way because of what we learned from last week's sermon, that Jesus chose when to die. Jesus chose when to die. He didn't physically drift off to death. Jesus, on his own authority, decided when he would give up his spirit. Now, we know from history, and as we study history, we know that this punishment of crucifixion was meant to be a very slow process of execution. It was meant to be long and grotesque. We even have some accounts where it would take days for the person to actually die, which helps us understand why the Sanhedrin so coldly asked for their shins to be shattered, for their knees to be knocked out. Just hurry this thing along already. I'm over it. But just before they wound up taking a swing at Jesus, they realized he's already gone. He's dead. He had died sooner than they expected. And to prove that he was dead, they end up thrusting a spear into his side. Again, he decided to die. They thrust a spear into his side, and what pours out of him is blood and water. Now, I don't want to just skip over this statement, but I'm also not able to give a full enough answer right now in this sermon to what John saw and what it might mean that both blood and water come pouring out. So for now, please hear this as an encouragement. Please hear this as a, as a way to, of, a, of a sort of a charge from your pastor. This is what it means to be, in part, a disciple of Christ to take the effort to to try to learn and to study and to search God's word for a better understanding of what these details might look like. So I want you to be encouraged to go and do that. Learn, study, search God's word for what this means. And believe me, there are all kinds of resources out there for you to use so you can study these details just like this. This is the call. We are a church who is constantly attempting to understand God's word better. And I hope you do this. I hope you take this charge. I hope you hear it as an encouragement. I hope that you will put in the kind of work and study to better understand God's word. Because again, the more we understand God's word, the greater we will fall in love with Jesus. And it is just a simple byproduct of renewing your mind on a daily basis. You will gain more assurance and you will have a greater understanding of your own salvation if you do that.
Now, what is easy for us to understand, thankfully, is what John just plainly says for us. We don't have to worry about the details. We know what John says. John just tells us that both of these events happened because God said they would. The the, the fact that his bones will not be broken and the fact that he will be pierced in the side happens so that Scripture would be fulfilled. And we see that in Numbers 9.12. It says that they shall leave none of it until the morning, nor break any of its bones according to all the statute for the Passover they shall keep. This is the conversation in the Old Testament about what the sacrificial lamb, how it will be treated in the sacrifice. No bones broken, won't be left till morning. Zechariah 12.10 says, And I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy, so that when they look on me, on him whom they have pierced, they shall mourn him as one mourns for an only child and weep bitterly over him as one weeps over a firstborn. Again, proclaiming that his side will be pierced. Now the next big thing that happens in this narrative is that Jesus is taken down from the cross and buried in a tomb. But Jesus' burial, under the circumstances, is actually kind of unique. Yet he's taken down from the cross. He has died. He's, he's dead, dead. They take him down from the cross, and they're going to bury him. But his burial is actually quite unique. You see, at that time, it was allowed for a family member to go and try to claim the body of the person who was executed. They, they would go and make the request, and oftentimes it was given, it, given to them so they could go and bury, to have a proper burial for their family member um, outside of the city. But if the body wasn't claimed, then the body would really just, ceremonial, just be thrown out into a common grave or on a trash heap, which would honestly be burned day and night, be constantly burning. There'd be a constant flame day and night. And this place, which was also outside of the city, was called Gehenna. Gehenna is a place that smelled horrible. And really, there wasn't anyone who really wanted to go near this place because, again, trash and bodies burned there day and night. This place became a pretty common metaphor for what hell would be like. R.C. Sproul says that this place was commonly used as imagery for the people of God to explain that hell was where the flames of divine wrath would never go out. However, even differently, however, when a person was executed for insurrection, the body was often left there on the cross so the birds and the vultures could pick away at the body until the body actually just fell to the ground. And that would have been Jesus' fate. That could have been Jesus' fate unless in God's providence, he had already prepared for Jesus to be exalted and honored after he just suffered utter humiliation. Right? He was taken to the cross, he was spat on and, 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 and beaten and whipped, suffered in intense humiliation and was quiet like a lamb led to the slaughter. But God providentially had already been preparing for Jesus to be exalted in his death. And we know God often does things with his people that we don't really understand. And I believe that is because of his gracious character. Oftentimes we don't get to see what God is doing until actually he is done doing what he's doing. And here, in John's gospel, in all the gospels, two of his secrets are revealed. Two of his secrets are revealed, and their names are Joseph and Nicodemus. 
In all four Gospels, this is actually the only moment that we meet Joseph, who is, said, who is from Arimathea. But we do learn a little bit more about him in the other Gospels. We learn from the other Gospels that he is actually part of the Sanhedrin. He's part of the council. And that he actually didn't consent to what the rest of the Sanhedrin were planning to do with Jesus, which affirmed his reputation of being a righteous and good man. We also have Nicodemus. This is the same man from John 3 who came to Jesus at night asking, how is a person saved? How can a person be born again? We meet him again in John 7 when he suggests to the Sanhedrin, which he is also a member of, that they should give Jesus a proper tri- trial. Doesn't a man not deserve a proper trial? Both of these men served As religious leaders, they both served in the Sanhedrin over Israel, and although they came to believe that Jesus truly was the Messiah, they kept their faith silent because they feared exposure. We see that they have faith, but they are now coming forward out of secret because they, they, in previous days, feared exposure. And now John has already given us his opinion about a man like this. He's already given us his opinion about men like this, and I want you to go look that up too, because if you go back and you study, it will likely convict you, as it should all of us, that we too often practically live out the lie that we should keep our faith private and personal. We often, all of us, practically live out that lie, even if you don't agree that that should be done, we practically live out the lie that our faith should be private and personal because so many of us don't share the gospel. We have the opportunity, we recognize the opportunity, but we remain private and personal. Now here in this moment, John speaks kindly of these men, probably because of what they're about to do for Jesus, but his words are really not so soft in John chapter 12, 41 and 42. Again, go and Read and study, please. I hope you study those verses. Moving on and and following through with the narration, uh, Joseph and Nicodemus, apparently because of their hope that they had in Jesus, finally feel obligated to do for Jesus what they couldn't do for him while he was alive. They decided to step out, out into the open daylight to honor Jesus in his death. They're seen and they're known. They've gone to Pilate. It's public. They're going to honor Jesus in his death. Now, to be fair, this likely wasn't a sudden decision. If we think about the circumstances, logically, this likely wasn't a sudden decision. When we think about the potential timeline for all of this, it seems that Joseph and Nicodemus had to have been preparing for this moment. Remember, they're part of the Sanhedrin. They knew what they were attempting to do to Jesus. They likely would have been, they likely would have would not have been able to purchase all the necessary materials and the tomb that evening. If they waited until Jesus actually died, it would be unlikely for them to scurry off and purchase the myrrh and aloe and find a tomb, or it said that it's carved out the side of a rock to actually, you know, hewn it out. All of that would have been unlikely. They had to have started looking for them earlier on. Remember, it's the time of Passover, and the, uh, the businesses, the local businesses, wouldn't have been holding business as usual because their mind was someplace else as well. They too were partaking in the festival. And the tomb, which again was purchased and belonged to Joseph, had to have been already been carved out as it was waiting and ready for a body. And because of their right desire to be obedient to the law, they were running out of time. 
It was nearing the end of the day, and they had to get Jesus buried. And because they wanted to be obedient to the law, they were running out of time. They had to get Jesus' body prepared for burial before the sun went down. This, again, was to follow the law, honor God, but also to uh, protect the land from defilement. But through all of this, even though these men are working at following the law, they recognize the thing that is of greater importance. They recognize what is of greater importance because by touching Jesus' dead body, that would make them ceremonially unclean and they wouldn't actually be able to participate in the Passover. The very thing that culminated all of their celebrations in the year, they wouldn't be able to participate in it. But honestly, why would that matter to them? Because they had found the Lamb of God. Right? You see why they are focused on what's most important, and that's Christ, honoring and worshiping Him. From an earthly point of view, Jesus was a destitute man. He even tells a, a sort of excited potential follower, foxes have holes, birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Therefore, it seems unlikely that Jesus' family would have been able to afford the amount of spices and aloe that Nicodemus brought to them. But Nicodemus did this to honor Christ, to honor Jesus, the Son of God, because the Son of God deserves this honor. He is worthy of our worship. Back to the prophet Isaiah, he tells us in chapter 53 again, near the end, that the Messiah would be treated like a criminal, will be buried like a rich man. Treated like a criminal, but buried like a rich man. As well, the tomb that Joseph had waiting for Jesus sets up one more piece of evidence for us. As we look at all of this, this is one last piece of evidence that can really give us assurance that all of this is true and real, that the tomb had never been used before. The tomb was empty when they got there. It had never been used before. It was brand new. Therefore, there were no other bodies in there. Sometimes they would use communal tombs for the family, so there might be multiple bodies, but there was no one in there, which means that there would be no way to mistake Jesus' missing body from anyone else. There was nobody else in there. If there was one body in there, and they go back, and there's no bodies in there, that means he's gone. Simple math, right? Yeah, we homeschool at my house. But we'll, now, now, we're talking about the resurrection, and we're going to preach on that next week. But this is how I want to end our time today, and I want you to consider this question. This is how we're going to end our time looking at this story. I want you to consider this question. What does this story mean to tell us? What can we learn from hearing this horrific tale? Again, right, likely here in America, especially Almost everyone knows the story of the crucifixion. So what does it mean or what can we learn from hearing this horrific tale one more time? This is what it means. This is what it means. That our sin is an act of treason against an eternal God. And because of that, we justly deserve eternal punishment in hell. That is what it means. But because of Jesus' abundant grace, our eternal punishment was exhausted by his infinite righteousness. And that he could accomplish this because he is God's son. He is who he said that he is. And we say this so often, but I, I, I say it often because we must remember it, that he lived the life that we should have lived and he died the death that we deserve to die. Jesus was 100% man and he was 100% God. 
Only as a man could he do the living and only God could shoulder the penalty. Only as a man could he do the living and only God could shoulder the penalty. Jesus is who he said that he is. And because he did what he came here to do, you and I can have full assurance that we are fully delivered. Because he has done what he's done, we can have full assurance that we are fully delivered from the anguish and torment of hell and we are are born again in Jesus Christ. We are freed from that. We are freed from the worry of death, from the fear of death, from the anguish and the turmoil that hell would bring because we are born again in Christ. That is our promise. That is the gospel. That is what we receive in Christ. That is what this means. I pray often, Maranatha, that we find our rest there. There. And if you're here and you haven't already, please, today, as you have just heard the truth, as you have just heard the promises that Christ is offering, repent and believe in Him because He is worthy of our worship. He is worthy of honor because He is the Son of God. That is the truth. That is what it means. If you would please pray with me. Father, we thank you for your truth. We thank you for the message of the gospel. Help us, Lord, to understand it deeper and in greater ways. Lord, give us deeper and greater faith as we are daily attempting to renew our mind. Lord, let Maranatha be a place where we strive to understand your word, Lord. Please reveal it to us through your spirit. Help us to share with one another, to to sharpen one another with the sword of truth, but also, Lord, let us proclaim and preach so people can hear and be transformed. Let us not fall to the lie of keeping our faith personal and private. Lord, let us be unashamed as we live out for your glory in this world. We love you and thank you for your son and all that he has done on our behalf at the cross. Help us to see him for who he is. In Jesus' name, amen.